Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is a Vanderbilt and Mayo Clinic trained, double board certified family medicine and integrative holistic medicine expert. Uh, I like to call him a, a very curious physician. Uh, he's a teacher, an innovator, who's paid a lot of attention to the root causes of illness. And he's going to talk with us today about some very new cutting age anti-aging techniques that you probably never heard of, stuff that I've actually done, some stuff that I briefly mentioned in Superhuman. But we're gonna go deep on how you can do things to your immune system, to your body, to your brain that you probably didn't know you could and things that we'll all be doing at some point, including young blood. <laughs> I like how I said that. I'm talking about none other than Dr. David Hasse. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, it made me laugh when you say young blood. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, it, it, it conjures up quite some amazing images, doesn't it? It does. And, and just to start out the show, now you and I both have a college student chained under our beds and we're siphoning off their blood to get the young plasma because it's cleaner than our plasma, right? <laughs> you know, mine, mine's on strike. I have Yours been... on strike. I replaced mine. I mean, my son, Alan, by the way, if you're watching on YouTube, he's sitting next to me. Um, so, I mean, Alan, can I have a little bit of extra blood? Is, is that why he's sitting so close to you? Do you have a little parabiosis going it, on? Yeah, he like right through his leg, like right there. <laughs> It's like a, like a little one of those tubes that just, yeah. So he uh, uh, he won't share his blood with me, and that's probably for the best because we, we might not have to do that. But uh, let's talk for a little bit because uh, I, I mentioned this in the book. Why in the heck would, and by the way, you're not actually an advocate of, you know, of stealing blood from college students or young people and all that. I'm kind of putting words in your mouth. But you are an expert on what's going on in the plasma of our blood. Uh, so talk to me about why blood plasma is interesting as a source of anti-aging compounds and why it's part of the aging process. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's great. And and you listen, uh, saying the word young blood gets people's attention, right? Woo! You know, everybody's like, oh, that's uh, you know vampire stuff. And, and that's really no, not at all what I'm working on. But You're disappointing but me. Okay, that's I, it. I know. No, no. But, you know, listen, uh, you know, what kind of got me into functional systems medicine was do least harm, right? You know, we should always make sure that any interventions we do are things that are really going to help people and never harm. And so, you know, doing things safely is always at the, the top of the list. So. But you, you said something really important there. You said do least harm because do no harm seems like complete hypocrisy because i'm sorry did you stick a needle in my arm you poked a hole in my arm you did harm like it, it's okay it was worth it but that that mindset has destroyed medicine the first do no harm exactly and, and you know, we're always going to be doing harm not doing anything is doing harm oftentimes and i think that's the other problem you know some people some physicians are just plain chickens you know when we have data that shows us that there may be something that can help but it's not yet considered the standard of care not yet something that is globally accepted um you know that is actually inaction has harm unto itself and uh when we're dealing i'm dealing with folks with alzheimer's disease all down to individuals with maximizing cognitive performance and uh and those are different classes of interventions that are appropriate for both of those groups of people you know one has really nothing to lose and the other has a whole lot to lose. So, you know, treating patients as patients really is first. You know, patient-centered medicine and listening and adapting to what an individual's needs are. Um, that's, that's the joy of getting to do this work. Uh, full, full agreement there. Uh, so now I want to maximize performance and live forever. And uh, how many college students' blood do I need to do that? <laughs> I don't know yet. I don't think anybody knows that yet. So for the people, listeners who aren't available, so how much have you talked about parabiosis? Pro on your, probably your not enough. Uh, unless so people read back, the book. What, why don't you define, science. talk about the history of this, where it came from and, and why we're not actually, you don't actually do that. I just keep putting words in your mouth because it's tied to what you really do do. But let's talk about that because it, it's a great way to get going. I think, well, there, there's some fundamental principles, right? And, uh, 
and on what creates health, which has really always been my passion. And, uh, you know, instead of let's just treat disease. So there's a, amazing studies done uh, both at Berkeley, Stanford, um, MIT, Harvard, where they took cloned mice, a young mouse and an old mouse. They're really the same genetics. They've grown up in the same environment. And then they attached them to each other, an old mouse to a young mouse side by side. And in about a week, an amazing thing happened. And the, the old mouse started to turn young, uh, new bone cells, uh, osteoporosis started to reverse, the liver started to function better, skin started becoming thicker and new hair started to grow, smell returned in these mice, uh, and the uh, new neurogenesis ensued. So the sprouting of new neurons and also increased synaptic density, just like what you were talking about in your intro statement, interestingly enough. So the ability to change one's mind is actually a physical event. You actually have to you know, increase the number of neurons and connections or decrease them. So, and so, and that would happen in this week. But the other thing that happened is this old mouse and young mouse were connected is that the young mouse was harmed. The young mouse was stunted by getting exposed to old because old is toxic. And, and when you recognize this fact, that there are, there are factors inside the plasma of old mice that actually can stunt body-wide the stem cells in that young mouse, it makes you reconsider a lot. So then after about a month, those mice are, stay connected, the young mouse recovers, you separate them, and the young mouse lives to its normal expected lifespan. And in some similar experience, experiments with rats, and we don't have many, um, the older rodent lives closer to the lifespan of the young rodent. So there may actually be age extension involved as well. So the, the fascinating thing here is, uh, and oh, and then that study was followed up by, hey, let's just pull young plasma out of this young mouse and inject it into an old mouse. And sure enough, voila, those changes happened as well. Um, and then some other interesting science, which we'll get to as we start talking about Alzheimer's, uh, also showed that pulling out, just getting rid of the old plasma was tremendously beneficial uh, in, in humans. So uh, this whole idea that the thing that your plasma is really the interface of what creates health because your plasma is the interface in between the outside world and the inside world, right? You know, so everything you breathe, everything you eat, everything you put in your skin has to go through your plasma to get to your brain, your lungs, your liver. It, it is the great interface. And so what the quality of your plasma reflects the quality of your living. And you, and you can dramatically change your plasma here and today by the choices you make and the environment you place your body in. So when we talk about plasma for people who are less medical than, than you are, this is just the clear stuff that your red blood cells are floating in and your white blood cells are floating in. Good description? Exactly. Good description? Exactly. So you, your blood is a mixture of cells and particles and fluids. And the plasma is a protein-dense fluid, the yellow stuff that floats around. And it but it contains a whole lot more. This is also where you contain your exosomes. This is where you contain uh, nutrients, hormones, signaling markers, uh, the degenerated chunks of DNA and RNA that have come off of cells that have died recently. Um, it is, uh, it's both garbage truck and grocery delivery van. You know, the plasma is incredibly important. Uh, and that's why when we draw blood, most of the time what we're looking at is not your blood, we're looking at your plasma. So we've been assessing plasma from the very early days of medicine. So when we look at something like, oh, your, your blood is it's clotting too quickly or something. We're looking at fibrinogen and thrombin. These are proteins in your plasma, not actually the red blood cells themselves. Right, right. And so you're saying that young people appear to have some good stuff in their plasma, or maybe it's a lack of bad stuff and old people have more bad stuff in their plasma. And I think that's really the question. It's like, so is there some magic formula? You know, you mentioned a bunch of great things in your book, Super Being. So you're superhuman. You know, that was... Uh, you know, that was, a, and I have to tell you, great job on the book. Oh, thank uh, you. You know, no, really, because it's, it's, uh, I don't usually like, uh, popular press books because they're full of fluff. 
usually, you know, usually is blah, 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 you know, a tiny bit of information packed in a bunch of story. You made it enjoyable to read, but also it's dense. And yeah, you there's know, a lot like, of stuff in there. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in there. And that's great, right? Because, uh, because this is not a simple process. You know, if anybody wants to think that this is a, uh, you know, there's, there is a single magic ingredient, I think they're going to be disappointed. You know, Clothco is a great example of that. That's going, that holds incredible promise as a single ingredient that comes out of plasma represented in young people. But it may not be the, the, the only factor that's going on. It, it is. In fact, it's funny. I, I write about the the youth encouraging factors that are documented to be present in young people, things like thymic proteins and GHK um, that we can introduce for cheap to our own plasma. And then there's a bunch of bad stuff that's in there. And then uh, Clotho, the protein, uh, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Jim, is working on synthesizing this stuff in a bioreactor. It's just too sticky right now. So once he gets that out of the lab, I'm going to get it in my veins. And uh, a lot of anti-aging people, as well as people with kidney failure, will. Right, so, right. I'm, studies in Australia, yep. I, I'm encouraged, yeah. though, to know that young people also have clotho. So if you get you know, a plasma from a young person, you could do that. But maybe there's a better way. Uh, what? So, so I think that let's let's go back into plasma. Kind of what do we know so far? Okay, so think of this. Uh, so I am a certified apheresis specialist. So, so I um, I I am trained on how to uh, hook up a person to a machine. Pull apheresis is the process by which you pull blood out. Uh, you mix it with an anticoagulant. It goes through a centrifuge. Uh, then the plasma gets pulled off to one side and discarded. The cells are then mixed with um, a replacement fluid of some sort. Uh, so, in that fluid, I like a Coca-Cola for myself. Yeah, I think that would that would be great for. I think that's really the bulletproof plan right there. And <laughs> so, but the replacement uh, fluids are, is obviously just like more to the point. It's a uh, it's a replacement artificial plasma. Correct. And, and most often, most often what's used is albumin. So albumin is the protein that's usually in this replacement fluid. Uh, immunoglobulins, so IV, IG, those are other components that get done in this. And so that replacement fluid joins your cells and that then goes back into the body. And so you, what you're doing is you're removing the old plasma and putting in some fresh replacement of some sort. Now, there's a remarkably large study that's been uh, been uh, completed, and it's, it's called the AMBAR trial. And this is looking at actually treating Alzheimer's disease with the um, uh, process of this plasma exchange that's going on. And so they took uh, approximately 500 um, uh, Alzheimer's patients, mild and moderate Alzheimer's disease. And they did this process of removing their blood, separating it out, and replacing all of their old plasma with albumin. And some remarkable findings came out. There is a, in people with moderate dementia, they had a 60% decrease in the rate of progression over 14 months, 60%. And in individuals with mild Alzheimer's disease, there were actually improvements over those same 14 months. They had uh, improvements in executive functioning, in memory. Um, and so what we saw here was a large, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multinational, multi-center academic trial. Has not been published yet. It's been presented at three major international uh, meetings, which I attended, and and this has been extensively debated already. But it's just amazing that the world doesn't know about this. And, and that process of just doing therapeutic plasma exchange and removing the old and replacing it with a very benign, very safe substance like albumin or immunoglobulins, that's that's astounding. And that's a standard of care for treating many severe autoimmune diseases. So we can treat multiple sclerosis, neuromyelitis optica, and some other horrible diseases using this plasma exchange process. Uh, but can't. But we have data now to show that this could be useful for Alzheimer's. So that is just, I would say, removing the bad. Okay, that's one side, removing the bad. In, in fact, from a nutritional perspective, it's the same thing. Oh, look, eat this because it's high in some kind of vitamin. Like, stop it. If it has a cyanide pill on top of it, it doesn't matter if it's full of vitamins. You've got to stop the bad and then accelerate the good. And it feels like in the practice of medicine, we've sometimes just, uh, we've just missed that, that 
point here. So your idea, hey, let's you know, let's get rid of the stuff that's causing the problem uh, before we start adding additional things like antibiotics or whatever else. I I just could not agree more. Yeah, yeah, and and then the whole aspect of that. What you've been asking is what happens when you add in, right? That's that was that's that's where all the energy is because those are the the, the what I'm talking about removing the bad. That's a procedure. I mean, you're dependent upon a procedure to pull out the bad and the old right now. And I think we're got um, we're working on some cool technology. I think there's so many things coming forward. But for right now, that's a procedure. But if you want to add something in, be it exosomes, peptides, you know, all these things that you've know, been using and working on for a long period of time, that those things, uh, there's a lot of magic there. And and the whole young blood idea is what started this process moving forward. It, it did start the process, and to be clear, um, if if people if, if you're listening to this and you've, you've read Superhuman, you know this. But otherwise, there were no studies of the company that was doing young blood, where you could oh, spend yeah. six or eight thousand oh. dollars to get. Oh. I I thought it was overpriced, and uh, I was concerned also about uh, maybe the level of testing of what was going on in the plasma you'd get. All I know is what I did in college, and I don't know that I would have won in my blood <laughs> from back then. Anyway, just saying. So, so plasma, but let me say this, that it, and that can be done better, I'm convinced, okay? I, I am absolutely convinced because the, there, uh, there are facilities that can you know, age and sex segregate uh, plasma that do, can do additional testing, can quarantine plasma for a long period of time. You, you, know, you should get your plasma from single donors, not these mixed donors. It should be tracked. Uh, there's so many things that if you're going to use plasma as a therapeutic, especially in somebody like you, right? If you're, if you're young and, and, and vibrant, the, the unknown unknowns are the things you really have to watch out for. And, and in medicine, we have to have a great deal of humility. However, if, if there's an individual with Alzheimer's disease and, and they have no future, they, they literally, their family is only seeing more torture ahead with the increasing loss of capacity and memory and function. Now one has to always come back to what is the risk benefit ratio of interventions of those types. And I do think that, you know, the that there should be these opportunities to dive in more extensively, utilizing young plasma as a therapeutic, you know, under good controlled circumstances in, in good uh, doctor-patient relationship environments. But it's not it's not a one size fits all. Here's this miracle elixir that should be pumped in. Uh, I wouldn't go there. Now I'm really, I, I have not tried plasmapheresis, although I would like to do it once every six months uh, just to get rid of the gunk that builds up. But what I have done is I've done uh, dialysis with a special filter that washes out all, not all, but many of the proteins from my own plasma, which is sort of a step towards what you're doing. So I sit there for a couple hours, anticoagulant, but instead of a centrifuge, we're basically running my blood through a big filter. Uh, and then you get a, a big container full of weird foam that was all the proteins. And for things like autoimmunity, generalized inflammatory molecules, cytokines, stuff like that, it seems like a really good idea. And, and for added measure, uh, I add some uh, uh, some ozone to it as well, which is going to kill whatever is left. Uh, so I, I do feel really good after I do a treatment like that. And I'm also hungrier than anyone's business, which is something that happens from dialysis. <laughs> And, and, and Dave, I think that is a great thing. I mean, th those are, I think, you know, removing the bad can be done very safely. And the idea of ozone and all of that on top, I'm copacetic. You know, those are things that I think are uh, amazing and that we should be able, we should be thinking forward in those domains. That's an, so that's so, good. So now we have a, a bit of a problem here though, because we just got hundreds of thousands of people listening to this going, I, I want a blood wash. <laughs> <laughs> I know that the ozone dialysis I do, it takes a couple hours. You have to have specialized equipment and a special filter, and there's different kinds of filters, and you, know, you can have drops in blood pressure, so you need good nurses or a doctor and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's probably even a bigger deal with the centrifuge uh, when you're doing uh, plasmapheresis. So Actually, less of a big deal. Actually, so we're able. The centrifuges are very stable. Uh, the filters often and, and and filters are amazing technology, and I see them really being the future. 
It's just uh, what type of filter, how are they utilized? But with a centrifuge, we can separate all kinds of you know cells or plasma or platelets, et cetera. But yeah. So if if someone wanted to go do this, there are almost no clinics in the US. I was going to fly to Germany to go do it uh, before I found out there's a few people doing it. And I settled on doing uh, the dialysis with a special filter instead of traveling to Germany. But how expensive is getting plasmapheresis uh, for the average person? Yeah, it really all depends upon you know, a how big that person is. You know how much replacement fluids so are there. Discriminating against tall people, I I swear. Not tall. Uh, you know, total pla- total oh, body volume against if, fat people. Oh, that's even that's you, even that's you, not even legal. I'm totally teasing you. Can, <laughs> you can actually move your right and left arm, and that can give you a discount right there. So uh, that, there you so. go. It's, uh, it's really high. No, um, but the, the the price can range anywhere from, you know, uh, major medical centers when they're doing this same procedure can be upwards of 14,000 per procedure. Uh, and, and so taking this into the outpatient realm and assuring safety on this can drastically decrease the price down. But we're still looking around $5,000 for most, most of the time for the actual procedure. Now, um, there are many procedures and there are Volume is going to be important because, you know, doing this well um, and is going to be done better at scale and that's going to decrease cost. Uh, so right now it's, it is challenging, especially for people with Alzheimer's disease. The study that was completed was that there was one exchange done once a week for six weeks and then once a month thereafter. So this is not a one and done operation for that particular component, but it is uh, and, and so this is where we have a lot of you know questions of balancing resources, you know, and where. Um, but you know, listen, the, as this becomes more popular, and I'm looking forward to teaching physicians on how to do this because I think that that is going to become once we have a better idea of what is the best way. Uh, it's it is. There's no question in my mind. Listen, this goes back to, uh, this goes back to you know the core of functional medicine. You know, how do you create health? Well, you either uh, you abide by the law of the tax, right? If you're sitting on a tack, you know, you understand it takes a lot of aspirin to feel better. So, you know, you want to get rid of the tack. Uh, so you get rid of the bad or you add in the good. And, and removing the plasma is just one additional way of detoxing things that couldn't come out any other way. You know, you know, or the body isn't able to remove it in any other way. So I think there's this is a fundamental principle. How it is going to continue to express itself, uh, we're going to see a lot of changes over the course of time. All right. So what I'm translating that to is that it will get cheaper over time. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so this is a big concern. A lot of people say, "Oh, this anti-aging stuff, it's you know, it, it's for rich old people." Right. And frankly, rich, old white people, because, well, there's a lot more rich, old white people <laughs> for all sorts of reasons than there are people of other races, at least in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. And the deal is that like, changing the environment around you and inside of you to make your body do what you want. That's everyone's game. It's called living and just you know being responsible as, as much as you can and just knowing what to do. So I, I look at something like this and I say, all right, um, our job would be to make people know how impactful it is. And then compare it to the cost of a long-term care facility for someone with Alzheimer's disease and say, oh, if you can avoid two years or five years or 10 years of long-term care, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, uh, this is actually a bargain, right? And it is. And that's where we start, right? That's exactly correct. And, you know, it, especially if you go to Alzheimer's disease, any memory care center that you get is going to be sixty-five dollars to $95,000 upwards, you know, one hundred and fifty. dollars you know, it all depends on how nice of a memory care center you want. And so you, know, you can have a year of apheresis, especially in individuals with mild Alzheimer's disease, seeing them maintain a level of function. They can be at home. They know their kids' names. They're, no long, they're not incontinent yet. You know, they can express their wisdom. And let me tell you, Dave, this is, I, I stayed away from Alzheimer's. I mean, I love the biohacking world. I like people who are sick that get better. Alzheimer's is an incredibly hard place to be in work. And, and I fled it for a long time. Um, but the thing that changed for me, and you actually mentioned this in your, in your first chapter as well, and it touched me because I have a deep passion for wisdom. 
I think wisdom is what our world needs more of. And and the the tragedy of seeing a brain degenerate is that all that life experience that has been filtered and, and curated that is needed in the world goes away. And and so treating Alzheimer's is really the the protection of our resource of wisdom. And um, and so it's not just it, what is the cost economics. Uh, having a grandfather that can still speak into your life in a way that is meaningful and loving, uh, these are amazing resources. But, you know, sorry, that gets me a little choked up because I, I, I think that it's a, it's, it's a moral issue, really. Yeah, it is a moral issue. And, and it, it's one thing if, okay, it was time to die. It was time to die. But it's the last 20 years where you're not able to do what you're supposed to do when you're old, which is share your wisdom and learning with the next generation. Right when you have, you're supposed to have energy and time to do that. And the world needs our elders. Uh, we really, we do need that wisdom. And that was one of the reasons I wrote Superhuman as well. Um, it's also why like I'm, I'm willing and able to, uh, thankfully, to go out and spend you know $5,000 twice a year to get my blood washed, <laughs> right? And uh, frankly, my car is eight years old and I probably could buy a new car, but I'd rather take that extra resource uh, and put it in, uh, you know, put it into my body because that's way more useful and interesting to me. Uh, and I look at, I, I look at you know, what's going to happen five years from now. And if, if this show does what it's supposed to do and you do what you're supposed to do, you train a bunch of doctors will be able to go out there and say, oh, this is now a $1,000 procedure. And a 1000 bucks is still a lot of money. But compared to a lot of the other costs that come with aging, it's it's in the realm of it's starting to get accessible. And you need it more uh, as you're older. And I, I feel like maybe insurance companies will start to cover it and, and that it's something that's possible. But I want to offer... Okay. I, I want to offer something. And my whole reason... That they're, not reason... My whole structure for writing Superhuman was very, very clear. It was, this is how the body works for aging. This is what crazy billionaires are doing. And I held up my hand and I did every single thing I could find and afford that a crazy billionaire would do, given that I'm not a billionaire. Uh, not that I'm complaining, I'm doing all right. But um, there are some things where you're going, wow, that, they want a quarter million dollars for that. <laughs> I don't think I could do that right now. <laughs> That's out of my pay grade. But... Um, so I, I went and I did all that, but then I look at, okay, this is the super expensive. And then this is the, it's not going to cost very much, but it's the same pathway. And then here's the free that's a similar pathway. So everything is, you know, entry level, no cost. And in terms of plasma exchange, look, if you're not going to be able to do this, you could do what I think that the old Greeks were into like, oh, let's do some bleeding. You can actually donate blood. Oh, absolutely. Just, just donating blood has survival benefit. Um, you know, so you're actually getting rid of your plasma one unit at a time and you're helping somebody else. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is, uh, one of the things that I think plasma exchange can really bring forth is this understanding that, you know, we can help a lot of people in the world, uh, by just, detoxing ourselves and having a good bleeding. Yeah. Now think about this. If you were to donate blood, you can do it, what, five times a year safely? Oh, more than that, usually. So so let's, we'll just say five times a year because it takes a little bit of time and all that. That means you pretty much got one full plasma exchange. You, you got rid of an entire body's worth of plasma, right? I'm assuming uh, you have no, about five. About a, half, about a half of a body. Half a body? Because then you have about five quarts you you have about five liters going on in there, right? And and only half of each one of your donations is plasma. So you have to do ten donations to to do okay. So ten donations is worth five thousand dollars of medical cost right now because that's what you'd pay for one blood wash, right? So ten donations can help a lot of people, but ten donations you can't do that in one year. You're going to be really tired and hungry all the time, and you're going to need a lot of steak if you do that and egg yolks. So. But over the course of two years, you actually can do something like this. And some places will pay you for a blood donation. Or certainly, it won't cost you anything. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing to think about here, and, and by the way, I'm just validating my, my thought process. And with donating plasma as well. So, I mean, you can donate much more plasma than you can give 
give whole blood. Oh, Absolutely. Just be a plasma donor. Okay, so there's your cheap version. Just donate plasma all day long, and then you're happy as a clam. It didn't cost anything. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Well, there we go. That's a, that's a way to do it. And then your body just generates its own plasma, whether they give you glucose, 5% dextrose or something. It doesn't take much. I mean, they're not pulling out a lot at that time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that that's cool. And then the other thing you could do, and this is something that I've been doing for a long time, is I take a lot of proteolytic. These are protein-degrading enzymes on the empty stomach before bed. Seropeptase, and oh, by the way, all of this is in Superhuman. So there will be show notes for this. There's a transcript on DaveAsprey.com, so you don't have to to stress about pulling over and taking notes right now if you're listening to this in your car. But I take serapeptase and some other protein-eating things, and what those do is those eat up the stuff that's in your blood, those extra proteins floating around, so you can have less of those molecules. And uh, we know that this works because it markedly lowers uh, fibrinogen levels, for instance, and thrombin levels. But also, when I did my, uh, my ozone dialysis, uh, what we found in the filter was they looked at that and they said, wow, you have the least amount of foam of anyone who's ever come through for a first-time uh, dialysis using the filter. Foam is a measure of protein there. So you can keep the plasma cleaner with protein enzymes, and they're talking 50 bucks a month, maybe 100 because I take handfuls of the things because, well, I do a lot. Um, or free blood, blood or plasma donations. And so I, just, I want people listening t- to understand you're at the cutting edge how do we do a medical intervention? How do we do all this stuff? But but there's there's ways that everyone can access this me- this mechanism of cleaning the blood. What am I and, missing? And also, you can well, you just don't pollute it in the first place. Oh, come on, right? You know, so um, you know, one of the supplements I know that you sell is I kind of I can't remember the name of it, but it's a prebiotic mixture. And oh, I just yeah. inner fuel. I chuckled when I looked at the ingredients because I have been encouraging people to eat sticks and twigs for about 15 years, you know, because, you know, the, these complex fibers that cause the you know, growth of healthy bacteria in the gut, you know, we need to have large arabinoglactan, you know, that's, that comes from a large, large tree. And so there's so many interesting things that we can do by changing the health of our microbiome. And that's going to change the quality of our plasma. Let's, you know, remove the foods that we happen to be sensitive to. Guess what? We're going to have fewer antibodies that are causing inflammation. And, you know, the, it goes on and on. So the, the fundamentals are always the fundamentals. You know, I spend my time. And, you know, the other thing is I've been working on is a, uh, a computer program, a software package to help doctors um, assess complex neurodegeneration cases so that they can uh, assess people through standard labs, start at the basics, you know, start at the foundations, a good questionnaire, good labs, and then uh, layer on additional investigations as are needed to understand that person or what they may need to do. And, and oftentimes we're missing the foundations. You know, you, you, sh- you just remove dairy out of somebody's life and it can be a massive transformative. Dairy event for protein, dairy sugar, or dairy fat? All, uh, all of the above for this particular individual, but I would say it's dairy, protein, and, and sugars for most individuals. Yeah, and it so, seems like protein's number one, and sugar's number two, and fat's number three, and fat for a lot of people is beneficial. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but, but it, the way people eat dairy is usually are, are not making those important distinctions, you know, so the pizza problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, so plasma is really a metaphor for how are we living our lives? What are we exposing ourselves to? How are we cleaning up? And then what environment are we placing ourselves into? Let's come back to the plasma thing, because there was a, a nice little study done for um, uh, done on Alzheimer's disease that came out of Stanford, the safety, tolerability and feasibility of young plasma uh, for the Alzheimer's symptom amelioration. You know, that was the plasma study. And they took a group of about 13 patients and infused these Alzheimer's patients with young plasma. And it was a very small amount of intervention that was done, and they had some symptomatic improvement. Now, all of these phase one trials are initially just to understand safety, but plasma as a therapeutic is something we've been doing for a very, very long time. We've been using fresh frozen plasma. This is nothing that is out there um, 
you know, as anything new in the world. Uh, but understanding the quality of the plasma uh, has is something new that we've been understanding. So it, it is uh, not just what we're taking out of the plasma, but what we're putting into the plasma that does matter. And, uh, you know, it's, it's astounding how much effort we have. Now, so when we exercise, we exercise, then we're going to turn on our mitochondrial cascade and we're going to increase our blood flow. We're going to drain our brain or the glymphatics in the brain tissue are going to dump more. And we're actually going to be able to remove more of the toxins and the nastiness that is present. Um, so it's always out with the old, in with the good uh, as a fundamental understanding of how do we turn around this uh, freight train of destruction that is dementia. Well, I, I love it that you're focusing on dementia, uh, and it, it's it's so painful for families to go through it. And it's one of the reasons that uh, last year um, I was the the largest supporter of the women's Alzheimer's movement uh, that's run by Maria Shriver, uh, and it also hits women more than men. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, given that you're working on Alzheimer's and you're looking at this plasma stuff, do does plasma in women different than plasma in men? Does plasma in women different than plasma in men? Uh, yes, it is. What What's going on that's different there that might be part well, of the Alzheimer's let, equation? Let's, let's kind of come back to Alzheimer's yeah. in women uh, greater than men to begin with. Uh, I call Alzheimer's the failure of our success, right? I mean, we, this we've actually done a good job of decreasing heart disease deaths and cancer deaths and the end of stage or end of life chronic degenerative diseases in many other categories. But uh, people are living longer so that we're actually having more opportunity to develop late stage Alzheimer's disease. Okay. And um, I do believe there are immune differences that are tremendous between yeah. women and men, especially as it regards T cell function. And uh, just as women have a higher propensity towards autoimmune disease, I think this is connected to their likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, as we age, one of the biggest problems is thymic involution. So the thymus gets smaller and the thymus makes our a large part of our cell mediated immunity. Both these cells that are told to be natural killer cells and go kill cancer cells, but also cells that are the regulators that say, whoa, enough there, big boy, you know, don't go uh, over inflamed. So they are both our gas pedal and our brake. And as we get older, the thymus continues to involute and it, it you have more and more fat replacement inside that organ and you produce fewer uh, naive T cells. So they cannot regulate the immune system effectively. I would actually posit that we should get rid of the term Alzheimer's disease and we should call it um, age-associated immunodementia because the, the primary defect that I see going on is an, is an immunoregulatory imbalance. Uh, at, at a, and there's, you know, listen, I'm a systems medicine doc, right. so I, I think everything matters. But, you mm -hmm. know, what is that one thing that really kicks us in the pants? Uh, and our, our thymus involuting is a big deal. And uh, recently there was a cool study done that actually looked at what happens if individuals were given uh, metformin, DHEA, and injections of growth hormone. And they were actually able to show not just a change in the DNA methylation clock, uh, one of Horvath's earlier clocks, mm -hmm. but they were also able to show that the thymus regrew to a very substantial amount. And there was new naive T cells capacity. So this, this is incredible. And that was from which intervention or was it two that? Well, the, you know, I, I talked with this study authors and, uh, so uh, it was metformin, DHEA, and uh, growth hormone injections. Oh, but, the one with growth hormone also. Okay, got it. That that's a, and, a good study. And, and there really wasn't there really wasn't a lot of effect from metformin and DHEA looking at the DNA methylation clock before that. And so I think uh, growth hormone releasing peptides. I think you know it can. Uh, that's I like interventions that the longer you use them, uh, either the less you need them. 
right? That's the mark of a great intervention. I like neurofeedback. Neurofeedback kind of goes into that category. Sure right? does. There's 40 yeah. years of Zen. Is, is, yes, that's right, baby. And uh, um, I've been doing neurofeedback and clinically for you know over 12 years, and love, love, love that. I think it's transformative for people's lives. Uh, but the if if it can't if it can't actually uh, heal, right? The longer you use it, the less you need it. At least it should not impair future function. So I think the growth hormone releasing peptides have an advantage over growth hormone uh, in that if you stop using them, you're probably not worse off than when you started. You take growth hormone, you know, it yourself and 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 you're going to have a, a challenge in kicking back your own production in some cases. So anyway, I, I go off on a tangent there, but the point is growth hormone is very much associated with youth. It, it creates a cascade of regenerative processes. And one of the fascinating things we've gotten to observe here is a massive effect on immunoregulation. So I think these individuals in this study uh, or studies like it will show a lower incidence of Alzheimer's down the road because they have higher immunocompetence. So this, uh, uh, yeah, so there's there's my uh, not so short answer to why do women have Alzheimer's more than men? All right. It's a, it's a super complex thing. No one knows to be perfectly clear, but when you do systems medicine or, or frankly biohacking, it's like you turn a gear, another gear has to turn, even if you don't know everything about it. So you can make intelligent assessments that are more likely to be correct than not. And, and that's the sort of thinking that is almost discouraged in medical school today, where it's sort of like, we know this, we know this, we know this, but we're like, well, there's all these gray areas we don't know. Uh, but from an insurance perspective, if you go into a gray area that might save someone's life, but then they don't live, like, oh, you just got sued or you lost your license, whereas a healer in the old times would say, well, this person's clearly dying. Like, let's see what might work here, and maybe we can save them. Uh, and so it, it's that system's thinking that says, all right. And from my perspective, look, I'm relatively young and, and way healthier than I ever was, but had I not gone into the gray zone, I would be profoundly unhealthy right now. Like, so the, the ROI was there, and it's always about the ROI for the individual, not for the insurance company. The nice thing, Dave, I see is a, a massive transformation happening in my colleagues. You know, uh, I, I, physicians are some wonderful people, and, and the, in the community of physicians uh, really do desire healing uh, in their patients. And, and what I see is a great dissatisfaction with the name it, blame it, tame it kind of a methodology. And medical students now are so curious. Uh, you know, there's so much information available and, uh, and and exceedingly informed patients, you know, so different than when I went to medical school. And I was the, I was the fount of knowledge, right? Now, now my job is not being the person who knows more. Now my job is the person who knows what to pay attention to. You know, it, it's what to ignore becomes a much more important job. And, and when I think the difference between biohacking and systems medicine is, you know, biohacking, um, you're, you're often dealing with somebody who's maybe not as critically ill, you know. And, and so I'm dealing with people with, you know, very challenging problems and, and they commit to diving as deep as necessary to figure out underlying causation. And it is a joy. I mean, it is such, I mean, I, my book is Curiosity Heals the Human. Uh, a shameless plug there, but. Oh, yeah. My, I, my, should, my, I should no, have mentioned that earlier. No, that's okay. No, that, that's fine. No, but, but curiosity, I think, is really what should drive us. And when we have that, you know, the universe opens up to the potential that can be there. And so better questions are the first step. It's, and, and maybe answers, better answers will follow, but the humility there is. Uh, you know, is I, I can't imagine how you couldn't be humble practicing medicine because there's so much uh, we don't know, but also so much we can do that we're we have available. Most of the doctors I know got into medicine for uh, one of three reasons: one is they really wanted to heal and help people; uh, two is their parents made them do it through some combination of uh, of shame and uh, financial manipulation. Uh, and then the third one is they just wanted to get rich, but they were bad at doing research <laughs> because modern doctors, they do all right, but it's, it's not, you know, 
a, a road to the gravy train the way it was 35, 40 years ago. Um, so it's it, it's an honorable profession. And so what it comes down to is the ones who were forced into it and they didn't want to do it, they usually leave the profession because they just get tired of it because it's actually hard work, right? And and then the people who want to be healers, they focus on healing and get frustrated when insurance companies stop them from doing what they want to do that's in the patient's best interest. So then there's stress there. But it, it's that healer thing that, that's just so terribly important. And so you, I think you, you hit that really well. And you, your curiosity, uh, in, a, in, in a way that I, I feel is similar to mine, uh, has led you to go down other roads. And one of the other things that you write about and you talk about is transcriptomics. Can you tell our listeners what that is and why we need to pay attention to it? Absolutely. Well, trans, the, the transcriptome is all the RNA that your cells make, make, may make. So we have the genome, those are, that's your DNA, and we have the proteome, and that's the protein. Uh, but how do you get from DNA to protein? You have to go through a step called RNA. So your DNA, your book of life, gets read. Basically, a copy gets made of the original blueprint. That copy of the blueprint gets shuttled out into the out of the nucleus into the cell. Uh, it interacts with this big protein machine called a ribosome, and the blueprint uh, nudges up against and amino acid after amino acid after amino acid come up, get linked into a long chain. That chain then spontaneously folds into a three-dimensional structure and voila, you have a protein. And the proteins are the machines that run the cell. They're the ones that have all this capacity for, for building and destroying and regulating. And, and uh, you know, protein in, is super important. And, uh, but So if you want to know what DNA is turned on, what you want to measure is how much RNA is present for any particular gene. So the number of copies of RNA give you an idea of what is the body telling that genome to do at this time? What kind of messages are coming in from the cell to say, hey, we need more coagulation proteins made? Okay, well, the gene for coagulation opens up, gets read, a whole bunch of copy blueprints go out and and now we see have a massive production of fibrinogen as you mentioned earlier so um it's such a interesting shortcut to ask what is the body really doing if we instead of looking at the downstream products which would be like your metabolomics uh your you know all the small molecules that are floating around in the system this is really saying okay what is central intelligence telling the body we need to do. And so we utilize a transcriptomic panel in our practice for individuals with complex chronic illness to understand, are there, are there mitochondria functioning well? You know, are, are, is the body turning on the proteins that are necessary to produce mitochondria? Or is the body making proteins to make ribosomes so that the body can make other proteins? Um, is coagulation turned on? Is apoptosis turned on or necroptosis or any of the other ptosis? <laughs> and um, then what is the flavor of the immune activation? So differential studies of various conditions are being published now. Uh, so there's a pattern for an acute Lyme exposure. There's a pattern for a treated Lyme exposure. There's patterns that individuals that have been exposed to water damaged buildings. And, you know, so those are some real opportunities and they're, they're not easy to interpret. They take a long time to learn. You're having to learn an entire different, uh, language, frankly, you know, what is the language of gene expression? And um, I was driven this because how do you assess what the cells are doing? There's so much chatter that goes on. You know, if there's not good nutrition, well, is that inhibiting the cellular function? Um, if there's not good signaling, that can inhibit cellular function. So you need to look at all of those different components when we're not getting the results that we should. Oh, and, and you know, you often speak of NAD. Well, I've got some... 
I should be publishing a paper here pretty soon talking about how transcriptomics can help us understand whom may benefit more in those circumstances and what are the and what are the changes that go on in transcriptomics with that. And I need more case studies and my conclusions are not solid enough that I want to but but the point is we should be looking at before and after results because the only thing that matters are results, period, end of story. I don't care what philosophy people have. I don't really, you know, I, I, my favorite days are the days I change my mind. You know, <laughs> if I if I have to give up a, a prior belief that was inaccurate, that's a great day. And um, and I like being challenged, you know, that's but uh, transcriptomics has really opened my eyes to just how much potential there is for the body to heal. It's a new science. And, and the problem is RNA is a mess to collect. So when you want to do a blood draw for transcriptomics, you have to draw the blood. It has to sit for a certain amount of time. It has to, and then, you know, for four hours upright, and then it needs to be frozen exactly in a certain way. And, and it needs to be shipped on dry ice. And so there's a whole bunch of barriers present to doing these kind of deep dive measurements, this investigative medicine. Uh, and again, as technology gets better and we're able to put more of these things on microfluidic chips, uh, as we're able to stabilize RNA more effectively, you know, this is going to become, you know, utilized more, more widely, which will be good for all of us. So timeline, how soon can I do broad transcriptomics? I think two, three months. And okay. so that's wow. So it's no, coming that fast. We're, these are really they're already here, but not in, in a way that's translatable easily. But your question was actually different than that. Your question was when can I do broad scale transcriptomics? That the panel I'm talking about is only about two hundred RNA, you know, two hundred genes. I don't consider that broad scale. The broad scale is when we're looking at all twenty thousand gene expression patterns. And uh, that's just done in a research lab. It's a different technology. Uh, for stabilizing, uh, reproducing, and measuring the RNA. Okay. So, it, you know, again, the the details of how do you make something that is cutting edge mainstream? Um, there's a lot of hurdles. There's a reason these things are not yet mainstream because they're a pain in the arse to collect. They're a pain in the arse to uh, interpret. Uh, and you have usually need to do them repeatedly so you can see art is what I'm doing working. And uh, that that is the the biggest problem with a lot of biohacking is you know the track it to hack it perspective from game changers. You can track all sorts of crap, but tracking requires multiple measurements. That's why I like my aura ring. That's why I like continuous right, glucose right. monitor yep. stuff you can Me easily too. do. All right, there you Me go. Too. We're both wearing one. Uh, stuff like that is really important. Okay. Um, that yeah. that makes good sense. Now, your your book talks about kind of in a similar way to Superhuman. It's some of the the cool things that are happening out there um, in um, just in the world of medicine. Things that you're curious about, things that people don't know about, like washing your blood and looking at your transcriptome and uh, looking at mitochondrial assessment is the other thing, because people listening to the show for any period of time have heard me talk about mitochondria as being way more important than anyone thinks. I hit the New York Times Science bestseller list with my mitochondria book. But at the end of that, the best assessment I could find after looking at every blood test out there, this was a couple of years ago, was actually a technology that we got for Upgrade Labs, one of the companies I started that, that's you know, down in LA. We, we can measure the oxygen that comes off your body and use that to tell uh, how, this is different than a VO2 max test, but in the same universe, we can tell how good your mitochondria are doing. But <laughs> that's kind of a pain. Do you have a new mitochondrial assessment test or a recommendation for one? Just tell, tell me what you're looking at. Yeah. So when I, so you may know that I kind of do most of the mitochondrial teaching for the Institute for Functional Medicine. So that's, that's my, you're, you're that's a my big jam on mitochondria. That's, that's my jam, baby. I love my mitos. And, uh, cause they're so fascinating. We just keep learning more and more and, and having to forget so much of the things that we used to know about them. Like a recent great paper was that these cristae, you know, the folds in the inside of the mitochondria, they migrate 
extensively. Like every three three minutes, they're shifting around. It's just a constantly mobile internal environment of the mitochondria. But that's not what you asked. So uh, I, I'm just, but I'm just geeking out. Sorry about that. <laughs> we can always geek out on mitochondria on this show. If people don't so, like it, so asked, they go to the next episode. It's all, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. It, in the mitochondria, I think you have to look at assessment in levels. Uh, so think of mitochondria as the mountain. And and every assessment tool is literally an observer around the base of that mountain. And and they're going to have a different perspective on what happens. So, you know, the so measuring your CoQ10 level is a super important measurement to take. You know, the the likelihood of sudden cardiac death in individuals with a CoQ10, you know, less than 0.71 if they have heart disease. Uh, heart failure is incredibly high. And and I measured one of my staff members who's a young, healthy woman, and her CoQ10 level was 0. 0.3. <laughs> wow. Just, I was just dropped my jaw and like, what's going on here? So so the the basic, so let's not forget the fundamentals, first of all. So CoQ10 can give you a lot of information. ALT, AST, GGT, LDH, these are all common blood tests that are done. They're usually called liver tests. They're not liver tests. They're mitochondrial function tests. <laughs> and they're, they're involved in how the mitochondria. So when those go up, say when somebody takes a statin or is exposed to a toxin and those levels go up, it's a sign of mitochondrial stress that's going on. And so that can let you know the need for treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the in your earlier your intro talking about for the ability for these mice to forget after they have been shocked. Well, magnesium enables that process to occur. Magnesium threonate specifically. You know, and magnesium threonate is important because it complexes with ATP. It's ATP is actually a salt of magnesium. Don't have magnesium, hard to hard to have stable ATP. Guess what I take before bed? A handful of magnesium threonate and I take the other forms in the morning. <laughs> and so, so your life shock therapy, you've been able to forget that. That's really a good thing for you. So, <laughs> and so, uh, but then, uh, what are other, so the more advanced techniques and starting to look at organic acid analysis, which I think is really useful, but that takes some interpretation skill, uh, and you have to prepare people well. Um, I also am liking MitoSwab. It's a new test that's actually quantifying the levels of the complex, you know, one through four and citrate synthase uh, in a buccal swab. And then we do uh, mitomics. So mitochondrial whole genome analysis, because you, first of all, sequence the mitochondrial DNA, but then there's over a thousand genes from the nuclear genome that is are informing and enabling that mitochondria to function. And for people with severe fatigue and, um, queasiness, headaches, muscle pain, uh, thought problems, you know, brain fog, uh, a lot of those end up having a, a genetic basis. And one of the utility of knowing what kind of genetic basis is going on is just how hard are you going to have to work at this and for how long? You know, the mitochondria are not something you can switch on and off. You need to nurture these little critters and you got to love on them for a long time in a lot of ways to help them come back to a state of robust health. Um, and then I've already mentioned transcriptomics. I think transcriptomics is going to be a an excellent way of helping us understand, especially the nuclear mitome. You know, which genes are turned on at any time? Are is our body believe that it's okay to actually grow new cellular materials? You know, is it going to make the energy for repair and regeneration? So. Um, that's not a simple answer on that, uh, because at the core, every function of our body is dependent upon mitochondrial function. Everything is dependent upon energy, period, end of story. So, you know, you just can't, um, uh, everybody wants a simple answer on this and, and I, and I'm looking for that simple. Now your test is actually measuring the whole body capacity, right? You're, you're measuring kind of the final, final total common, final total output. It, it's how's, how's the system of the mitochondria doing? Um, because I mean, you can pull a couple mitochondria out and unfortunately red blood cells don't have mitochondria. 
so uh, you know you, you've got to get other kinds of, of cells. But then, okay, your skin mitochondria are doing something totally different than your brain mitochondria. Uh, and since mitochondria all talk to each other and share information with each other in a complex system, I feel like ultimately the gold standard is going to be how good are you at turning air and food into electrons and heat? Like if, if you can do that, well, we know, but it doesn't tell us what's wrong. We'll just, oh, something's broken. And if you can say, oh, in your, your citric cycle, of, you know, the step five of making electrons is where you're leaking and that's why you have muffin top and that's why you have Alzheimer's. That's what, that's happening. Like that is going to happen. It's just a real pain in the ass. Um, I can say ass because I don't have a medical license. You have to say arse. I totally see the difference. I, I, yeah, I want, no, it's actually, a, it's a Canadian, uh, Canadian South Dakota thing. So, no, um, but I think you bring up one other point is that it's, an, it's messy you know, it's messy. Systems medicine is messy. Biohacking is messy. When you're actually dealing with reality, it's messy. If you're going to deal with a made up idea like an ICD-10 code, oh, you have type 2 diabetes. And, and oh, that happens to be a particular ICD-10 code for billing purposes. And, and if you stop there and diabetes is diabetes is diabetes, you can't start ferreting out, well, how did you get to this place? And the, the closer you try to get to understanding the, the multi-causation of a diagnosis, the, the more uncertainty you actually have to be honest about. And, and I think that's actually a challenge. It's a philosophical challenge, not just with medicine, but with humans. We love certainty. We don't like things to be kind of cloudy, kind of messy. We don't like probabilities. We want certainty. And, but the bottom line is reality is filled with uncertainty and probabilities. And, and when we accept that, we have so much more power. We then can start dealing with multifactorial analysis and multidimensional plans like the call a lifestyle <laughs> and, and get huge benefit out of that stuff. But it's not this one magic ingredient that we all want to believe is happening. I, uh, I very much appreciate that perspective. And like I said, it's messy. Hacking mitochondria is tough. Uh, but you said something really straightforward, coenzyme Q10. <laughs> It's not that expensive to go get some CoQ10. Uh, I've been taking relatively high doses of it for many, many years. And the data is out there that says it's a good idea. Data is out there. And, and also, you know, it's, it's just crazy how many upstream things that are possible. We don't have to do everything to do things that are very meaningful. Start where you are with what you have now. That's probably the most important thing that, that you said in the interview is you don't have to do everything. And I, I worry when I write books, like I want a complete universe, but man, if you try to do everything in superhuman, you better be willing to write a seriously big check. I know I did in order to even like do the research for the book. Uh, but also, uh, the check that you write is in time Like you're going to have to fly around and do a bunch of weird stuff and take a handful of supplements. I don't do everything I talk about. Uh, I, I think that he shoved woo the herb, even though it might be good for you. It tastes like crap and it ruins my coffee if I put it in there. So I'm like, man, it, it's on my counter, but I might not put it in because it's gross. I, you know, what am I going to do about that? And yeah, so there are limits and, and that perfection and all, that'll actually make you old. Uh, it'll probably give you Alzheimer's too. So it's like, yeah, pick something. If, if you improve, great. And if you didn't, stop doing it. And that goes for Bulletproof Coffee too. Hey, if you don't feel better when you drink it, then don't drink it. It's okay. It just happens to work for most people, just like coenzyme Q10 works for most people. Like it, it's one of those things. So. Yeah. Well, I, I do have to recommend your book because a lot of people listening to the show, they get it that I'm, I'm very future oriented. I'm, I'm like seeing, the, seeing, seeing things before they happen. Uh, and I have a track record of doing that. I don't, I don't like to be called a futurist, but a lot of what I do is that what's it going to look like in a while and I somehow know and, and position things for that. Uh, and I, I think you have that same thing, that same mindset in your book. So for, for someone listening to the show, you're listening to this saying, all right, um, you know, is, is it worth my time to read it? Look, if you get excited about knowing what's happening in the future and maybe being one of the first people to live way longer than all of your uh, friends, uh, the ones who didn't do what you told them to do, I think this is a good book for you to read. <laughs> How's that for kind of a dark intro for a book? That's good. I like a dark intro. You know, I, I want to be real clear. I I wrote this book for only a few people. 
you know, I wanted the people who are really curious, you know, I wanted the people who wanted to solve their own questions and start that process of if you're stuck, where do you go from here? And um, the number of answers that are within us are, are of, uh, of infinite number. So, well, the, your book is called Curiosity Heals the Human, uh, and you are definitely an acknowledged expert in the field. The Institute for Functional Medicine uh, is a, a major training ground for the functional medicine doctors uh, who I've been recommending since even before I started Bulletproof. And uh, so you're the guy who trains them on mitochondria, and uh, you're, you're very deep on some of these other very cutting-edge things like washing your blood and people today learned from you you know here's the free version and here's the five thousand dollar version and if you're in the hospital the fourteen thousand dollar version uh, and that fourteen thousand dollars that's just for the band-aid when they're done the, the procedure is even more uh, but uh, uh on that note uh david i i really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show and just the work you're doing saying look i'm, I'm a doctor and i'm going to make people better uh regardless of, of the way the system is set up and i'm going to do it with you know, hard numbers and science and understanding of complexity and, and that your curiosity is serving you and, and millions of others. So thank you. Uh, Dave, thank you for having me on. You know, everything I do is about how do we create health? You know, how can we maximize wellness? And so it may seem like I am involved in these disparate things, but you know, at, this, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's about individual humans uh, being able to live into the lives that they deserve and can achieve. And uh, it's it's a it's it's an incredible opportunity to engage that mystery and to work within it. So thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You got it. Your website is David Hasse. That's H A A S E M D dot com. You got it. You got it. And and we'll have a uh, an assessment on there. Just how you can uh, you know what is your best way to for superhumanizing. It was this has been a ball. Thank you for the work you're doing in the world, Dave. You got it. Now, if you like today's episode, definitely read uh, read David's book. Uh, read any book that you think is going to provide more back to you than the time you spend reading it. And if you make that hypothesis, you test your hypothesis by reading or listening to a book, and you were correct. What you do is you go to Amazon and you say, I achieved victory. That's a five-star review. And if you're like, this book was a total waste of my time, why did they kill a tree to print it? Then what you do is you go and you say, you know what, here's what was wrong with it so the author can know, and you don't give them a five-star review. But we have to have feedback. You track it to hack it. So as authors, we care greatly whether our book was worth your time or not, because if we spent you know, 2,000 or 10,000 hours and had blood taken out and did all sorts of weird tapping into our bone marrow to write a book for you... Um, just let me know if it was worth it. You know, let Dave know if it was worth it. So thank you for reviewing the books you read and thank you for reading because reading makes you a better human. Have an awesome day and I'll see you on the next episode. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.